I'm glad. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's lovely. I was so encouraged by the time of prayer uh, earlier on just to hear what's going on in your different churches. I'm actually just encouraged that different congregations are coming together as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus uh, to, to, to have fellowship together um, and to pray, pray with one another and listen to God's word. I wonder if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, in the church Bibles, it's on page 12,002. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll hit Hebrews 2 in just a moment. And this is something between a lecture and a sermon. And I don't really know what the difference is between those things. So my sermons are always a bit too much like lectures. When I'm teaching, my lectures are a bit too much like sermons, so I'm just going to do whatever I do. And we're going to dot around the Bible a little bit. But I want to start by just saying something really exciting happened today in Salisbury. A real highlight of the year for me, we had the first Sunday gathering of a new church. Um, and I was there, um, just part of the congregation, which was you know, for, for someone who used to be a pastor, it's always just blissful to be part of the congregation. And it was wonderful. There was a real buzz. It was exciting. Uh, it was a joy to see the launch of a new Christian fellowship in my city. But, you know, of course, the novelty is going to wear off quite quickly, uh, particularly for those who have to get there early and put the chairs out and set up the audio and the musicians who always get their way before the minister and practice. And it get, just gets exhausting and tiring. The initial buzz will die down and pretty soon an exciting new church plant will just feel like any other normal church. Just a normal group of people doing very ordinary Christian things. And the members at that point will be faced with a question. What happens when the buzz wears off? Why keep on going to church? And a year or two in, uh, when it's a sort of dark, cold November morning, why go to church? Why gather every Sunday in person? It's a question we've had to face, isn't it, uh, over the last couple of years? And it sounds like, for, for some of you, it, it's, these are live questions in your church fellowships. Um, can I just log in online? Can't I just read my Bible and pray on my own or, or with my family? In fact, really, can't I just meet with God and, and be with God anywhere at any time? And let's be honest, we, we may love our churches. I hope you do. Um, but most of the time, in my experience, the Sunday gathering is lovely but it seems so ordinary and unimpressive. And there are often more entertaining things to do. C.S. Lewis captures it in the Screwtape Letters. As Screwtape, the senior devil, writes to the junior tempter Wormwood, and he says this, one of our great allies at present, these are the demons speaking, one of our great allies at the present is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. Fortunately, that's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic building on the new housing estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny book 
containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, in very small print. Adjust that for whatever happens <laughs> as you walk into your church on a Sunday morning. You see why I'm choosing C.S. Lewis. It's sort of culturally distant and I'm not treading on any toes, I hope. And then he goes on. When he gets to his pew, he looks around and sees just that selection of his neighbours whom he has hitherto avoided. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side, on God's side. Provided that any of those neighbours sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. Why go to church? Why go to all the trouble of gathering in person every week? It's so very mundane. Mundane in the sense of maybe being a bit dull. Mundane too in the sense of just being also earthbound. And the answer given to me when I was a young adult was that we go to church to encourage one another. We encourage one another from God's word. We encourage one another as we sing to one another. And there's truth in that. There's wonderful truth in that, but it's only part of the truth. The problem is that it locates the action basically on the horizontal plane. We meet with one another. We encourage one another. And so in my imagination, the gathering of God's people became a basically human gathering. A human event with human activities, even if they did have a spiritual focus. Well, in the rest of uh, our time together, and, and as Ollie said earlier, there'll be time for Q&A at the end. So as I go along, if, if questions pop up in your mind, just make a, a note of them and, and maybe we can come back to them. But for the rest of our time together, I want to show you from the Bible that that is a very diminished understanding of what happens when Christians gather. When we gather as the Lord's people on the Lord's day, something utterly extraordinary and supernatural is taking place. When we gather, we gather in the presence of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ himself. In our gatherings, he is present in a unique and special way to bless. Let's take a look at Hebrews 2, verse 11. The writer to the Hebrews says, Both the one, let's, let's do that again. The Holy Spirit says, Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's Christians, are of, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. These verses depict the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, who is present where? At the Father's right hand in glory. But he's not only present at the Father's right hand, he's also present in the midst of the assembly or the congregation. And we'll think more about that congregation in a few minutes, but just notice two things. Notice what Jesus calls us 
and notice what Jesus is doing as we gather. First, what he calls us, verse 11, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. Think how exalted and glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is, our great God and Saviour, risen and ascended, enthroned on high, reigning over all of the nations as his inheritance. And he calls us brothers and sisters. The 16th century reformer John Calvin comments, we are not worthy to be considered less than his servants. Less than his servants. We're not even worthy to be his servants. But, but he says he calls us brothers and sisters. And, and this has the force of him carrying us up with him into heaven. He's so much greater than we are. And yet he raises us up to his level. But notice also what Jesus is doing. Two things uh, in verse 12. I will tell of your name or I will declare your name or I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. Jesus is saying, speaking to his father, saying, I will preach your name to my brothers and sisters. Why go to church? Well, what's going on as we gather What's going on as Christ makes himself present to us in our midst? He is preaching. He is telling us of God's name. It's, I mean, just suspend your disbelief for a minute. What is going on as you listen to a sermon? Calvin again commenting on this verse. We must think of the gospel as told not so much by men themselves as by Christ with their lips. In the sermon, at your church, every Sunday, Christ is present and Christ is speaking to you through the lips of a man. I think of an older man I know who described when he became a Christian. Going along, he was taken along by, he just started working in the city of London and he was taken along to this meeting by a, by a very pretty young girl he wanted to ask out on a date. So he asked her out and she said, we can go out together as long as you come with me to this event. That's our date. So he was there because of that and he said, there was this very eloquent and impressive man who was speaking and I thought, oh, he's rather interesting, but I don't really like what he's selling. And then all of a sudden... All of a sudden, I began to hear a different voice. And I found myself addressed by Jesus. And that was when he became a Christian. That's why Paul can say in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, from Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, Christian preachers, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Or in Ephesians 2 verse 17, Paul writes, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, those of you who know your Bibles, when was it that the Lord Jesus Christ came and preached to the Ephesians? Never in his earthly ministry. 
In fact, we're told in Acts 19 about how the gospel comes to Ephesus. And the gospel comes to Ephesus when Paul goes and preaches in Ephesus. And yet Paul says, in my preaching, Christ was preaching. His was the voice you heard. So what's happening as the word of God is preached in our services? The ascended Lord Jesus Christ himself is present, preaching the word of God to us through the frail lips of a fallen person. Utterly extraordinary. Why go to church? Because as we gather in his name, Jesus is present and eloquent and radiant. But if worship has a God to us direction in the preaching, it also has an us to God direction. And Christ is leading in that too. Again, verse 12, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praise, Heavenly Father. What's happening as we sing? The emphasis is not here on us singing to one another. It's on Christ leading us as we sing praise to God. In our prayers and in our singing, we're caught up in this great divine movement as Christ, as our mediator, leads us in praise to God. Here's Calvin one last time. This teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to the praise of God. When we hear that Christ heads our praise and he is the chief conductor of our hymns. If you watch the Queen's funeral service um, and then the, uh, the service at St George's Chapel afterwards, the music was extraordinary, wasn't it? And you have these just brilliant. I did a music degree and I am in awe of how much better all of those musicians were than, than ever I could ever be. But there they are, this magnificent choir, the trumpeters, and they're being conducted by a musical genius, James O'Donnell. Do you know what? Your church's singing is much better than that. The conductor of your church's singing is much better than that because you are being conducted by the Lord Jesus Christ as he is the lead singer and leads your praises to God. I don't know what the music and the singing are like in your uh, your fellowships. I enjoyed singing with you earlier. But do you see, as you gather and sing praise to God, you are being caught up in an extraordinary divine event, a supernatural event. Isn't that wonderful? Sing louder. Sing more fervently. Sing with joy. You are singing with Jesus. So according to the Holy Spirit in Hebrews, the risen and exalted Lord Jesus is in our midst even now. This is where he has told us we will find him. Every Sunday morning, and if you meet in the evening, every Sunday evening, in word and sacrament, and prayer, and praise. If you wonder where Jesus is, there's this whole thing called the quest for the historical Jesus uh, that New Testament scholars write lots of books about. Um, And the guy I'm studying for my PhD thesis just went, I don't know what they're on about. We don't need a quest for the historical Jesus, so we don't need a quest for Jesus. We've not lost him. We know where he is. He's here with us. He's at the Father's right hand. He speaks the gospel to us. He is speaking now through frail human lips. And he leads us 
to sing praise to God. The gathering for worship of the local congregation with the local grocer, the squeaky boots, the tuneless singing, the double chins, the odd clothes, that gathering is the absolute glorious heart and center of reality because it's where Jesus is. It's where we gather with one another to meet the true and living God through the mediation of his Son. So let me actually turn the question around. I think the title of this should be, Why on earth wouldn't you go to church? We focused on basically one verse of Hebrews. Let's just pause and step back now and take a broader view of the entire Bible for a moment. Don't worry, we won't go at quite the same speed through every verse of the Bible. Because actually, this will help us to see the answer to three things. What we were created for, what we've been redeemed for, and how we'll spend eternity. And... All of those things are bound up with what we've just been seeing about what goes on when the Lord Jesus meets us on the Lord's Day. So first, it's what we were created for, and therefore it is the longing of our hearts. Why did God make you? Do you ever wonder that? Why did God make you? God made you so that with the rest of his people, you could draw near to him and enter his gracious fatherly presence and worship. We're made for that. It's just natural to us. It is the highest and greatest thing a human being could possibly do. And so sinners, even as they turn from God, never stop worshipping. Romans 1.25, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Do you ever wonder why there are so many religions in the world? Do you ever wonder why people get so wrapped up and obsessed with their careers of all things? Or their children, or their bank balances, or their holidays? It's because we can't not worship. We have to love and value something as supreme. Worship is how we're wired. It's the longing of our hearts. And and so even when as sinners we will not worship the true God, we will inevitably worship something. But for the Christian believer, to worship God is the deepest longing of our hearts. So let's just listen to three psalms. Just a few verses. We don't have to turn there. Let me just read them to you. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Notice the intensity of the language and the longing. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is, is bitterly, bitterly upset, weeping, and longing 
in a deep depression because he's separated from the gathering of God's people to worship God. My guess is that's a pretty vivid memory, isn't it, at the moment? Locked up in your own house, unable to meet with God's people. Yes, the blessing of being online in those extreme circumstances was a great blessing. But it's not the same, is it? The psalmist longs to appear before God with his people in his temple to sing his praise. And he is miserable until he can. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He is isolated and weak and faint with longing. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, the temple, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Notice again the longing to be in the sanctuary the longing to be at the temple, the longing to just be still and focus mind and heart and contemplate God in his power and glory and seeing how just delightful he is, lifting up hands in praise and thanksgiving. In Psalm 84, you see exactly the same thing. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. We were made to draw near with God's people into God's presence and delight in our great and glorious King. That is why you exist. It's what we were made for. It is what our weary souls long for. I remember a woman saying to me, can we have a midweek meeting at church, please? Because it's just too exhausting to go from one Sunday to another with nothing in between. Secondly, though, it's why we've been redeemed. We were made to worship God, but as sinners, we suppress the truth about God. We reject him, and instead, we worship creatures rather than the creator. We don't love him, but God doesn't stop loving us. And so he sent his son to put this right. Let's just look at John 4 for a moment. John 4, verse 23. It's on page 1067 in the Church Bibles. Jesus is with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he says to her in verse 23, A time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. And I just want to draw attention to one word in those verses, which is the word seeks. God is seeking. We're told in the Bible why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. 
uh, Luke 19, verse 10. It's wonderful, isn't it? But this is the only time in the entire Bible that we're told that God is, using this word, seeking, that God is seeking something from us. The only time we're told that. Let me put it starkly. We are never told in the Bible that God is seeking evangelists and witnesses to Jesus. I'm not saying evangelism and witnessing to Jesus is a bad thing. It's a very good thing. But we're never told that is what the Father is seeking. We are never told that the Father is seeking our service or ministry. This should tell us something about the priorities of the local church and what is most important in your congregational lives. What is the Father seeking from us? He's seeking worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. Who worship in the power of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus who is the way, the truth and the life. This is the goal, the end point of the gospel. The end point of the gospel is not our sins being forgiven. That's the start point of the gospel. The end point is that there's a direction to this. We are forgiven and cleansed so that we can draw near to the holy God and worship him in spirit and in truth. It is the reason God sent his son to seek and save the lost. To, to bring worshippers to his father. And so, logically, Point three, it's how we'll spend eternity. There are doubtless many things that we will do in glory that will be wonderful beyond our imaginings. Doubtless it will be lovely, as Justin Welby said at the Queen's funeral, that we'll meet again. But that is not the loveliest thing. That is not the most glorious thing. Yes, it will be delightful to meet one another. If you have lost someone you love, it will be a joy to be reunited with them. But... The true wonder is we will meet him. We will meet him. We w- the worship will be our supreme undertaking. It will be what thrills us and delights us and fulfills all the longings of our hearts for all eternity so that if you have ever heard a preacher say something as stupid as I used to say, which is, oh, we won't just sit around on clouds listening to harps, singing God's praises, No, we won't do that, but what we will do as we gaze at him and adore him is find that our strength grows and our capacity grows and we delight in him and worship him with greater fervency and greater intensity forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no fewer days to sing his praise than when we first begun is not a kind of, so brace yourself. It's a hallelujah. And so in the book of Revelation, John is given a vision of the heavenly throne room. And listen to what he says. Um, Well, let's turn to to Revelation, right at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. I can find it. It's on page 1236, verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night. They never stopped saying or singing, Holy, holy, 
holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. I mean, that's the entirety uh, of the heavenly assembly right there. And, And wasn't it glorious that at the late queen's funeral, the hymn she chose to end with closed like this, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. You see, that is how she wanted her funeral to end. Because that is how she knew her life would end. Casting her crown before him. In fact, it's, it's how, not how she knew her life would end. It's how she knew her true life would begin. And again in Revelation 5, more clearly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and strength and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I mean, that is the entirety of creation. Finally released to fulfill its true purpose. So what is going on in the heavenly throne room? You've got the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb who was slain, seated on the throne, and all around him is the entirety of creation in a great heavenly congregation gathered in worship. He is the absolute centre of undivided attention and love and adoration. He is getting finally entirely what is due to him. This is where we're heading, brothers and sisters. You will be part of that. It's the direction and goal of life for every Christian believer to be part of that congregation of all the saints gathered in the presence of God, forever praising God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, well, let's bring that down to earth, literally, for a moment. Certainly all of life is to be lived as an act of worship. That is only appropriate. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. All of life is to be an act of worship and service of God. 
certainly we can praise God and read his word and pray on our own or in our families or in our small groups. But the gathering of the church for corporate worship each Lord's Day is a unique picture of our heavenly destiny. There is nothing in Revelation that suggests we will sit silently in our own little room reading our Bible and praying on our own. It's a good thing to do, but it's not our eternal destiny. But actually, the local congregation is more than that. It's more than a picture. It's a foretaste. When we gather in our congregations for spirit-filled worship on the Lord's Day, we join already in that heavenly assembly. Let's turn back to Hebrews for the last few minutes. Hebrews chapter 8. We saw a few minutes ago in the Psalms those references to worship in the temple, the earthly sanctuary in the Old Testament. And we saw the psalmist longing to gather with God's people at God's house to meet with him. Now there was spiritual reality going on there. The people really did meet with God in the temple. But you know, the Old Testament temple was really no more than an earthly model of heavenly reality. My son and I went to HMS Victory in Portsmouth um, a few months ago and had a great day, just a great day, climbing all over things and looking and playing and seeing where Admiral Lord Nelson died and all of these kinds of things. It was just brilliant and it's a great, it's a great tour. They do great, sort of they get all the sounds of the battle on the ha handset as you go round and you hear the story of the day as it unfolds and it was brilliant. And the other day, I, I looked online and discovered that you can buy, at great expense, a kit to make a model of HMS Victory. It's pretty fabulous. It, it would be fun for Simeon and me to make it uh, and to look at it. It costs over £1,000, so we're not going to do that. But even at over £1,000, that is not half as good as going down to Portsmouth and getting to walk around HMS Victory herself. For a year before we were married, uh, my wife and I lived on separate continents. This, believe it or not, this was pre-internet. Um, and so for a year, I had a photo and a half-hour phone call every week. Now, oh, that was lovely. But it was not the same as the reality of her presence. Not, not the same as being face-to-face. Well, it was great to go with God's people to sing his praises in the temple, the earthly sanctuary. But the Holy Spirit tells us in Hebrews that the Old Testament sanctuary and the Old Testament priesthood were an earthly model of a far greater heavenly reality. Hebrews 8 verse 5. The Old Testament priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and just a shadow of the one that is in heaven. In contrast, chapter 9 and verse 24, Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now 
to appear for us in God's presence. Unlike the Old Testament priests, Jesus did not have to offer sacrifices again and again and again. They had to do that because those animal sacrifices did not take away sins. Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice was perfect. It did take away sin. Chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is made, uh, not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He didn't enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood so obtaining eternal redemption. Through his blood shed on the cross, Jesus has entered into the heavenly places for us on our behalf as the mediator and great high priest who brings us to God. He has sat down at the Father's right hand because his perfect work is finished and so he can put his feet up. His one perfect, sufficient sacrifice for sin is complete. Nothing needs to be added to it, ever. And so our redemption is accomplished. And, therefore, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. You see, he hasn't just ascended into heaven on his own. He's ascended for us, and in his love and mercy, he lifts us up to join him. Now. What a glorious truth that is. The application is found in chapter 10 and verse 19. That's what the writer does in Hebrews. He keeps sort of telling us glorious things about Jesus and then saying, therefore, this is what it means for you. So therefore, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, application, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. How? With a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled by Jesus' blood to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Isn't that great? How is your conscience? I don't know how you feel about your conscience. God sees it as completely clear. washed clean by the blood of Jesus and our bodies washed with pure water. So with a clean conscience, not anxious and worried about how God sees you, you can draw near. You don't have to let sin keep you from coming to church. You don't have to be ashamed to meet with God and his people. But notice how corporate this is. Not let me draw near. 
Not let you individually draw near, but let us draw near. It's something we do together by the blood of Christ. Let us draw near. And yes, there is a place to encourage one another, verse 25. But that's not all that's going on. Christ has ascended into heaven, but he hasn't ascended alone. And so as we gather, he draws us up with him into the throne room, into the gracious presence of his Father. Now, there's a real and wonderful sense in which God is present with us wherever we are. Where can I go from your presence? Says the psalmist in Psalm 139. But when we gather for worship on the Lord's day, when we gather in the Lord's name, he is present with us in a a unique and special way to bless us. Or perhaps better, it's not that he comes down to us, but by the Spirit, in Christ and by his blood, as we draw near together, we are lifted up and made present to him. You see, those wonderful images in Revelation 4 and 5 are already taking place as we gather. It's as if every Sunday, spiritually speaking, the roof of the church is rolled back and we gather not just in Chislehurst or or wherever you gather, with Mr. Jones the grocer, and Miss Smith, the dentist, and Mr. and Mrs. Roach, the retired grandparents. But we gather with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven around the throne of God's grace with Christ in the middle, the Lamb who was slain. You see, really at the heart of Old Testament tabernacle and temple worship is this idea of drawing near and ascending into the presence of God by means of sacrifice with praise and thanksgiving. But that was just the model. That was the the airfix model. The heart of the theology of Hebrews is the idea of ascending by means of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, our dear older brother and great high priest and drawing near by his blood into the gracious presence of our great God and heavenly Father. And that's pretty much exactly how Hebrews describes the heavenly congregation and its heavenly worship. This is where we're going to finish, and then there's a few minutes for Q&A. You see, brothers and sisters, where have we come tonight? It took me a while to, to uh, find out where the entrance to the car park was, and I was wondering if I was ever getting to where I was coming. Um, but actually, where, we, we've not come here tonight. Or rather, in coming here, we've come somewhere far better. Hebrews 12 and verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A blood that cries, that doesn't cry from the ground and demand banishment for Cain. 
but blood that Jesus presents to his Father that demands our entrance into his throne room. Why go to church? Why go to all the trouble of gathering in person every week? Why join in with the worshipping assembly of God's people? Dear brothers and sisters, do you understand where you're gathering? And do you understand who you're gathering with? And who you've come to meet? Oh, we love our church families and they love us. I mean, I hope that's true of you, although I understand that some of us may have had very bad experiences in local churches in different ways. There may be all kinds of trauma that means it's hard to gather with God's people. For others of us, it may be a struggle just because it seems so mundane, a bit awkward, a bit boring, not quite to our taste. Remembering what the old church used to be like or remembering what church 20 or 30 or 50 years used to be like. Maybe it just seems all a bit earthbound and not that much different from anything else you do during the week. And yet by the grace of God, this very ordinary gathering of very ordinary men and women and children, through the blood of Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, gathers in heaven. Not earthbound, but exalted in Christ. Not needing to keep away, but by the blood of Christ, drawing near to the throne of grace together. We come to God, the holy, righteous judge of all who has forgiven our sins and wiped our consciences clean and accepted us and made us his children and embraces us with an extraordinary welcome. Why go to church? Because in our gatherings together, we go to the throne of grace in heaven. And we do it not just with our little congregation of very ordinary people, but with the roof rolled back, spiritually speaking, we ascend to God's throne and we join with all the saints throughout history. Now made perfect in God's presence. We join with countless thousands of angels in joyful assembly. We join above all with our dear Lord Jesus Christ, who stands in the midst of our congregation. Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Jesus, who through the preacher's mouth proclaims the gospel once again to us. Jesus, who leads us in singing praise to God. Just take a moment of quiet, then I'll lead us in prayer, and then I don't know how we'll do Q&A, but we'll do it. Lord, our, our hearts and our minds are, are full of the wonder of the gospel again, of, of the greatness the majesty, the perfection, 
the tender love and mercy of your Son, our dear Saviour. Of the wonder of consciences cleansed and sins forgiven. Of the wonder of free and confident access to you together in him. Our Father, capture our, our minds, our imaginations, the longings of our hearts, and direct them to the gathering of the church and to the church itself insofar as that, that, that directs them to Jesus and to you. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.